If you're new here to City Church, we want to say welcome home. If you're watching online, we are very honored that you would watch us through the Facebook Live experience or through our YouTube experience. Hey, today, today, you know what today is? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. We got some palms up here. We got the cross. This is moving into the holiest week of the year for Christ followers. And around the world, around the world, people are celebrating the Christ who came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, the Bible says that he was a lowly, humble king. The book of Mark refers to that, that he came into Jerusalem as a lowly, humble king. Uh, but when he comes again, he's going to be coming back as a conquering king, riding on a white horse. And we look forward to that day of Christ's return. Amen. We are so thankful that you're here. I know there's a lot of announcements that were just up on the screen, but I do want to mention our welcome home brochure. And hopefully everyone got this here today when you came in, because this is really the way for you to communicate with us. Uh, if you're new here to City Church, there's some information about next steps and how to get connected. And then we have what we call a connection card component of it that tears off. And uh, on your way out, we have three connection card boxes. You can just drop it in there, but there's a place for you on this side to fill out your name and just uh, your email address. And then also, this would help us in uh, knowing how effective we are in communicating the message of City Church to the community. If you're new here, you can just check off how you found out about us. And then on the back side uh, are boxes for you to check for your next steps and a place for you to fill out a prayer request or a praise report. We pray first. We believe in the power of prayer. Amen? And so if you could do that, we'd love to pray with you. Our staff meets every Tuesday, and we pray first. We pray over all the needs of our church and congregation. What's your favorite food? Come on, just think about it. Now, if you're like me, different seasons and different times of life, right? I remember fourth grade, favorite food at school. Liverwurst on white bread with yellow mustard. I don't even know if they sell liverwurst anymore. My mom, she made us eat all the innards. This Jewish lady, they liked all the innards. And ah, I can't even believe I ate that. But I liked it when I was a kid. Smile on my face. Get older, your tastes get a little more refined. Maybe you like that big bowl of macaroni and cheese with a little hot dog inside of it. No, not that one. How about a big, juicy steak? sizzling on the grill. I mean, you know, so much of it's about the season, the time, right? Where you're at, location, place. But, but we all have favorite foods, foods that we love. We're foodies. We all got to admit it. We all love to eat. Now, I, I don't know about you, but uh, whatever food I eat today, if I, I ate a little apple, a couple apples back there, I'll have lunch and maybe a little snack before I go to bed tonight. Tomorrow I'm going to be really hungry again. Isn't that right? I had that experience this last week. Friday evening, uh, we went to Epcot. My wife and I with another couple in the church, we went to Epcot. And while we were at Epcot, we ran into actually some other family friends right here from City Church. And uh, we were at the last part of our journey. Uh, Epcot, if you've ever been to Epcot, you know they have these little countries. And uh, right now it's the Flower and Food Festival to be followed by the Food and Wine Festival to be followed by another eating extravagant experience if you go to Epcot. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. Right now it's flower and food, incredible flowers, beautiful, beautiful flowers. And then every little country has some kind of little food that you can buy there. And so I ate, literally ate around the world. Friday night, I ate all the way around the world. I started in France and I ended in Mexico. There you go. 
all the way around the world. Now, here's the deal. As I ate myself around the world, I was getting pretty full. And uh, I got to Norway, and Norway, in Norway, they, they have what they call school bread. Anybody ever school bread before? You Norwegians, you know, school bread, and it's like this pastry, and, and they fill it with this cream. It's like, a, if you're on a gluten-free, sugar-free, fat-free, it's like the worst thing in the world. <laughs> no matter, I thought I, I, I couldn't even eat half of it, and it wasn't as good as I remember, but I remember after eating all afternoon, I woke up Saturday morning. Yesterday, and guess what? I was hungry, like really hungry, like couldn't wait to eat. You know, because the fact is the food that we eat today, it's here today and gone tomorrow. It's the reality of it. Jesus, Jesus is talking about real food today. We're in part four of our series entitled, entitled, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. The Hard Sayings of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 6 and just a little background to what's taking place here. In John chapter 1, Jesus comes as the revelation of God in flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, as a man, literally was God with human skin on. Revealed in John chapter 1. John chapter 2, we see the first miracle of the Son of God. The living God who dwelt and lived among us. We see his first miracle. His first miracle was turning the water into wine at the marriage of Cana. And then John chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation. Jesus has a conversation with a man by the Nicodemus about what it is or how can a person be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, can I go back into my mother's womb? No, no, you missed it. You missed it. Here's a natural illustration of human birth. And there's a spiritual reality of what happens to the human heart when they put their faith and trust completely in Jesus Christ alone. John chapter 4, Jesus has a conversation with the Samaritan. Jesus is breaking down walls of tradition, of, uh, 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 of generations and centuries, uh, of paradigms and, and problematic relationships. He's breaking them down. He's having a conversation with a woman at a well who'd been married multiple times and she was a Samaritan. And in Jewish culture, the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't get along. It's kind of like the Israelis and the Palestinians today. There was no love lost. There was a lot of anger, a lot of animosity, a lot of tension between these two people groups. And Jesus demolishes that wall. And he goes and engages. He actually goes right to where she's at. He engages in a conversation. And then in John chapter 5, uh, we see Jesus doing a miracle. Doing a miracle at the pool of Bethesda. A man who's lame from birth. And he's laying by the pool. And Jesus comes again. Jesus comes to a person. Hear this. Jesus comes to this man. And the Bible says he asks the man, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Do you really want to have a changed life? He asked the same question today. What's a stupid question? Well, we say we want a different life, but do we really? Are we willing to do the things necessary to experience a different life? I know i got to lose 10 pounds. That's my goal right now. My goal, 10 pounds. And I know in order to do that, I can't eat around the world on Friday night at Epcot. Just can't do it. Don't matter how many steps I walk the next day. All right? In John chapter 6, John chapter 6, because of the momentum that Jesus has his, completed his second year of ministry. In John chapter 6, we see Jesus going into the final year of his ministry and, of his, and his life on earth as a human. Fully God, fully man, but in his fleshly forms, his final year of ministry, and it kicks off. It's Passover time. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Multitudes of people are following him. It's amazing. 
the momentum of his ministry and of his life. His name is famous everywhere he goes. And we find ourselves in John chapter 6. And I'm going to read verses 35, and then we're going to skip down to 53 and read through verse 60. As I like to do here at City Church, I want you to stand with me in honor of the reading of the word of God. John chapter 6, beginning with verse number 35. We're actually going to take a journey through John chapter 6 here, but these are the verses we're going to read this morning. And the Bible says, then Jesus declared, Jesus said this, I am, everyone say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hunger, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is so significant. This is so important in the life of the believer. The people that heard Jesus at this moment, they were beginning to shake. Things were beginning to get stirred up in their minds and hearts. There were people, because he said this, beginning to really oppose him because of this declaration. We're going to talk about it in just a moment. Verse number 53. And the Bible says, and again, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in you. Verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is, come on, my flesh is, and my blood is, real drink. 56. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds, everyone say feeds. On me will live because of me. This is the bread. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Verse number 60. And on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? This is a hard teaching. They're thus the hard saints of Jesus who can accept it. Jesus really meant it when he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. We're going to pray this morning. We're praying for resurrection services that are coming up next Sunday. We've got lots of things for you to engage yourself in as we prepare ourselves for Holy Week. Wednesday night, we'll be having a prayer and worship night, praying for the weekend services and a strategy meeting on, on how we're going to impact this community. And then Saturday, Friday night at 7 p.m., Good Friday, Friday night at 7 p.m., Good Friday, we'll be breaking bread together, having a powerful moment as we reflect on the cross and the work of Jesus. And then Saturday morning kicks off our Easter services, 1 o'clock Saturday, uh, 8.30, 10, and 11.30. Every service will also have an Easter egg hunt with it. And so we're just going to have a great time of festivities and, and praise and thanksgiving for the resurrection of our King. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning. We've already had such a wonderful time encountering your presence in worship. But I realize that the Lord is not just the experience of your spirit, but it's the power of your word that transforms our human life. And Lord, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? The things that you said were not easy many times for the intellectual man to understand, but the spirit man bears witness with your spirit that this is true. So I pray today from our head to our heart, the transforming power of your word would take place. Give every person in this room spiritual eyes to see and ears to see ears to hear, and for myself, God, give me a mouth to speak. I ask this, Lord, in your wonderful and your mighty and your powerful name, and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Jesus is in the last year of his ministry. It's Passover, 
And multitudes of people gathered around Jesus. Thousands of people. In John chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, it's actually the story of Jesus taking a couple of loaves and a few fish. Five loaves of barley bread, John's gospel actually tells us. Barley bread was the poor man's bread. Barley was a poor man's bread and just represented that Jesus talked to the average common guy. Jesus, Jesus spoke to people in a language that they could understand, at least intellectually. The illustrations that he used. He spoke to fishermen. He spoke about fishing. When he talked to farmers, he talked about farming. Uh, Jesus spoke to the everyday common person in a way that they could understand. And the words that Jesus spoke and the miracles that Jesus did drew thousands, thousands of people. And at this moment, as Jesus was on his way to the Passover meal, over 5,000 men had gathered, not including women and children. So there were thousands and thousands of people, and Jesus had been teaching all day. And at the end of the day, he tells the disciples, you give them something to eat. They're like, well, what are you talking about? We can't do that. We don't, we don't have the capacity. I mean, there's not a Burger King and a Mickey D's and a Taco Bell down the street here. Jesus, I mean, we're, there's no Long John Silver to send all these people. We don't even have enough money. Even if there were restaurants, we couldn't send them any place to eat. And Jesus said, bring me what you have. And they found a little boy. He's got five loaves of bread, two fishes. Jesus blesses it, prays over it, and it multiplies. Was the multiplication coming out of his hands? Was the multiplication happening as the disciples touched it? Don't know. It just multiplied. 5,000 men and all the women and all the children. And look at verse number 12. And the Bible says, and when they had all had enough. Kind of word grammar there. But when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. Let nothing be wasted. Jesus, as the bread of life, was their provider. Everyone say provider. provider. Jesus, as the bread of life, was their provider. Whew. Multitudes of people. Now, this, gotta, this guy's got to be something special. Now, if you know Jewish culture, if you've been in the church any period, you've heard the teaching, you have the understanding of the background. They were waiting for a Messiah. The prophets had prophesied it. Isaiah had spoke of it. Isaiah had said that the, the dumb would open their mouth and the blind would see and the deaf would hear when the Messiah came. All of a sudden, the dots started to connect for them. And they started to believe that this man, Jesus, would become their earthly deliverer. Not only would he be their provider, but he would be their protector. And so they wanted to take him and make them their king. He's going to save us. He's going to deliver us from the, from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. We're no longer going to be held in subjection to these Romans. We're going to be able to have our own faith, our own religion, our own country, our own nation, our own rules, and our own laws no longer being subjected to these people. So John chapter 12, we see the bread of life taking place. Jesus said, no, 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 my time isn't now. My time isn't now. My kingdom is here, but it's not yet. He's going to come again. He is going to come again. 2,000 years later, we're waiting for the return of Christ. Well, he will be conquering king. Where the governments will sit upon his shoulder. He will be the king of kings and the lord of lords. But 2,000 years ago, his time wasn't yet. And so they try to take him. And immediately the Bible says he slips away. But before he slips away, he puts his disciples on a boat into the Sea of Galilee. He doesn't go with them. He pushes them out of boat, on a boat, and on the boat, all of, a storm, all of a sudden, a storm comes up, and they're afraid for their life. And the Bible says that Jesus walked out to them on the storm. I want you to see this here. 
And then when they were willing to take him into the boat, he comes out into the boat. I mean, can you imagine? You're in the midst of the storm. You're wondering, where is Jesus? And all of a sudden, there's a guy walking to you on the water. I think this ain't no magic show. This ain't no trick photography. You know, this isn't David Blaine doing some kind of strange, weird thing that he's practiced for years and years and years. This is Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, walking out to them on a boat, afraid for the life. And immediately, everyone say immediately. Immediately, immediately when Jesus comes to them, he gets in the boat and he saves them. He saves them. Immediately, they get to the other side. Now, what I found interesting about the miracles of Christ is that no matter what Jesus did, it was never enough. It was just never enough. I mean, if you look at John chapter 6 and Numbers chapter 11 in the Old Testament, you will find a great similarity. You'll find that the children of Israel, because see, this metaphor, this is actually a metaphor. You couldn't even describe a better metaphor than what took place. Jesus feeding the multitudes of people with the bread and delivering and bringing protection and deliverance to the, to the, to the disciples on the boat. Then the, this metaphor referring back to what took place in the Exodus. You see, this was Passover. Every Jewish person in the room knew what they were get, getting ready to do. Every Jewish person on the hillside knew what was about to take place. They were celebrating the deliverance from captivity of over 400 years of slavery at the hands of the Egyptians. You know the story. God raises up a man by the name of Moses who goes to Pharaoh, a man who he had been raised with. And he said, God tells me to tell you, let my people go. Refuses to do it. You know, ten plagues, you know the story. And then, and then, the Bible says that Moses, because of the death angel that came by, therefore thus we have Passover. The reason we have Passover is because the death angel came and took the firstborn of every living creature being in the land of Egypt, except those who had posted blood over the doorpost door, door of their house. And the Israelis, the Jewish people who did this, they were all saved. They knew what this meant. They understood this. This Passover season was so significant. So when Jesus delivered them, the Bible says that they came up to the Red Sea. And it looked like it was another impossibility. It looked like in another impossible situation. But immediately, God shows up on the scene. Pharaoh's army behind them, the Red Sea in front of them. Moses raises a staff, and the Bible says the water parted, and they walked across on dry ground. They were delivered. The imagery of water. And then they get into the wilderness. They're heading towards the promised land, the land that God had promised their father Abraham. And they get hungry. And Numbers chapter 11 tells us a story. They begin to complain. It just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. So God feeds them a thing called manna. Everyone say manna. God feeds them manna. They, they eat this manna for 40 years. They sustain themselves on manna. But you know what's interesting is that miracles of Jesus were never enough. Manna in the morning. Quell in the, in the evening. Rock, water from a rock. Across the Red Sea on dry ground. Healed them from plagues by looking on a, on a stick with a serpent on it. Gave them the most humble, greatest leader they could ever ask for. It wasn't enough. This wasn't enough. 
And in the time of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus weren't enough. They weren't enough for some. I love what Tim Keller, Tim, Tim Keller says about miracles. He says, we modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem us where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world that we all want is coming. The world that we all want, the Redeemer, is restoring. The natural order of things is not to be broken, to be busted, and to be disgusted. The natural order of things for which Christ has come is to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly. So the bread of life, this bread who came down from heaven, we first see as our provider and our protector. And what the provider, the protector knows is he knows your heart. He knows the motives of every single person in this room. I don't know your motives. You don't know my motives. We can look at people. We can see the fruit of the life. But we don't really know what drives them. We can think we know. We can study psychology. We can project on people. But the fact is God alone knows the human the book of Ezekiel says that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for those who are loyal to him. The prophet Samuel came to anoint the person who would be the next king over Israel after Saul's term was finished. And the Bible says that as the prophet Saul called in all the sons and all the, all the brothers of David, he went down the line and God spoke this word to him. You're looking at the outward appearance. You're seeing the tallness, the bronzeness, the bigness, the badness of the man. But I'm looking at the human heart. I know what it's going to take for this person to lead my people into my promises. And it wasn't any of David's brothers. But it was a young 12-year-old boy. God called him. God knows the human motive and the human heart. I want you to see in verse number 26, I want you to see what happens. Jesus speaks very specifically because people were coming to him for all kinds of reasons. It's like church today. People come to church for all kinds of reasons. People came to Jesus for all kinds of reasons. Look at verse number 26 here. The Bible says, and Jesus answered and said, verily, truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs... Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Some people came to Jesus because they were looking for security. They were looking for security. They, they, they saw this man to be their liberator, their deliverer. He was going to lead them from the oppressive uh, people of Rome. He was going to be their security. Some people came to Jesus because they, they saw him as the God who would meet their material needs. Uh, the Romans had a, a plan. They, they had a, a government structure and program. They would give free bread to the people. It wasn't enough. It wasn't the right kind of bread for the Jewish people. They weren't satisfied with that. And they saw Jesus as being their provider. Some people came to Jesus because they saw him meeting their material needs. Some people come to church. Some young men come to church because they're looking for all the fine women in the church. 
Some young ladies go to church because they're looking for the man. Any man. Amen. And people go to church for all kinds of reasons. They're looking for security. They're looking for relationships. The Bible says, the Bible says, he humbled us, causing us to hunger, feeding us with manna that neither your ancestors had known, teaching you that man does not live on bread alone. So some people come to Jesus, they, they kind of see like Jesus, Jesus like the Santa Claus in the sky. Give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. Not about relationship. It's about what he can do for them. And then when Jesus doesn't work out the way that he thinks, well, what are you doing for me lately, God? Other people came to Jesus because they just wanted to know the rules. They wanted to get to heaven. They wanted a little box to check off and do all the right things so they could make sure they got fire insurance. Over the last... Over the last 30 years, I've gone to the bedside of many people that, at the end of life. And I remember several years back, I, I went to visit a man who had never been to our church. His wife had came faithfully. She prayed for him, and I went to pray with him and talked to him about the Lord. And after I left, one of the parishioners in the church said, oh, yeah, I went to see him last week, too. And right after, right after I came, the Catholic priest came. And right after the Catholic priest came, the Eman came. And after the Eman came, the, 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 the synagogue rabbi came. And then the Buddhist, I mean, he's going to cover all his bases. He wasn't sure. But people, they want rules and regulations. Check off the box so that they could get in. Look at verse number 28. There were people who were legalists that were following Jesus. They just wanted to know what to do. In verse number 28, the Bible says, Then they asked him, what must we do? Do what's, What must we do to do the works God requires? What do we got to do, God? There's rules and there's regulations. Rules are kind of like the guidelines, you know. You play a sport, here are the rules, here's the rule. But the, the regulations are the law. So you watch this all the time in sports, you know. There's rules and it's subjective. It's based on who's, who's refereeing, who's umpiring. And, but the law, the regulations are the law. This is what the law says. This is what the, the law states. You'll watch an NFL game, and there will be an instant replay. And you'll watch the umpires gather in the middle of the field, and they get the rule book out. They want to know what the, the regulations say about what just took place. See, because we love religion. We want to be, there's something in us. Even people claim to be atheists, they're still religious. They have faith in nothing, but they still have faith. There's something in us that gravitates towards being religious. You're going to see it this Easter week. Every year in the Philippines, you'll see this on the news. You'll, you'll see people who will, who, who will do the, the, the Villa de la Rosa. They, they will literally try to crawl on their knees, carrying a cross on cobbled stones. And then they'll get to this hillside. And you'll see images and pictures of this where people actually allow themselves to be nailed to the cross, trying to find payment for their sins. Wow. Legalists want the rules, want the regulations. An outward appearance. Someone once said, Christianity isn't about people trying to discover God, but about Jesus reaching out and finding us. And then there were the sensationalists. Look at verse number 30. So then these people who saw all these things asked him, what sign then? Some came for the food. Some came to know how to get into heaven. Others came to him. What sign will you give that we may see it and believe you. What sign? What sign? 
what, what miracle are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do next? What is the church going to offer next? What's the, the, the latest communicator, the latest speaker, the latest, latest exciting thing that gets our juices pumped? Sensationalist. What sign will you give? We're following him with the signs. But then there were a group of people who were really sincere. In verse 34, the Bible says, they said to Jesus, always give us this bread. We want this bread. But as I began to process this, I realized that most of us barely know our own motives. If you really were to go deep into your heart and you were to ask yourself on any given day, why are you serving the Lord? Is it for what he can do for you? Is it because you're just, you, you want to make sure you don't want to go to hell, so you want to make sure that you're going to go to heaven? Is it because uh, I get excited about this latest thing that just happened, this newest revelation? Why are you following Jesus? That's the question that everyone should ask. I, as I was preparing this week, I began to ask myself, how often do I fall into the trap of one of these three? I do it. I'm sure all of us in this room, at some time, our motives are mixed. Why we do things. And we always have to come back to this reality. The simple truth. The simple reality. That Jesus, the spiritual Jesus, is the bread of life. You see, what Jesus is about to tell these guys is spiritual. And it's not physical. Look what he says here. I want you to see this here in verse 30. Verse, verse 34, sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. Wow. I am. I am. Look at this. I am the bread of life. Seven times. Seven times in the book of John, Jesus would declare that he was the I am. When Jesus said that he was the I am, every Jewish person in that room, their mind went back because they knew the stories of their people. For thousands of years, they had passed on the stories and the traditions of their forefathers. And they knew that when God, the creator God, the sustainer God, the mighty God, showed himself to Moses at the burning bush, he revealed himself as the great I am. I don't know what you think about Jesus, but when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, I am the true vine, I am the door, I am the great shepherd, I am that I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life. At that very moment, he was declaring that he was God all by himself. He was the great I am. I am the bread of life. This shook them. It shook them. What is he saying? He's saying, I am. The bread of life. The simple truth is that whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. We can't exist without food. We can't exist without water. They tell us, I don't know if this is true or not, they tell us that you could live possibly for two years just on bread and water. It would be a terrible two years. It would be a messy two years. Your body would completely break down by the end of the two years, but you could potentially live on bread and water. Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? 
we were listening to a teaching on Wednesday night in our small group, and, and the guy that was teaching, teaching on marriage, just in passing, he said this, all of us have addictions. All of us. I begin to think about my life. I begin to think about people that I know in my family. I begin to think about people that I work with. And I realize that all of us have a propensity to excess, excess in some area of our life. A couple, read, a couple weeks ago I was reading uh, online about this young man uh, someplace in South Korea who played video games so long that he died playing video games. Moms, don't let your kids do that, all right? What drove that? How could a person be that fixated on a video game that long? Maybe it's not a video game. Maybe we're fixated on food. Maybe we're just driven compulsively to eat, even when we're not necessarily hungry. What drives us? Maybe it's a click on the internet, a television. Just whatever it is in your life, there's a human propensity towards excess. You know what it is? You know what it is? Whether it's booze, whether it's relationships, whether it's more bucks in the bank, whatever it is, whatever it is, is that we're actually hungry for God. We're hungrier for that bread of life. The bread is spiritual. This is where it starts to get really, really complicated because the bread of God that came down from heaven, Jesus Begin to tell us what it meant from God's perspective. In verse number 36, the Bi- verse 37, the Bible says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. The fact is, because of Jesus being the spiritual food, he seals us. He seals us today. He will never drive you away. All who come to me. I love what Matthew says when he records the words of Jesus, as Jesus stood before the people, he said, come unto me, all you that are full of burdens and brokenness and pain, I will give you rest. None of you who come to me, I'll never drive you away. I'll never drive you away. And then he goes on to say, listen to this, then he goes on to say, I will never lose you. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those that he has given to me. I grew up as a young person in the church believing that I could lose my salvation at any moment. You've heard this story, but for some reason in my mind, I felt like I was always on the verge of missing God. We had a strong teaching on the second coming of Christ as a child. It's called the rapture of the church. And I remember as a little child, Always being afraid that I was going to miss Jesus. Always being afraid. Didn't have that sense of security. The fact is when Christ redeems us, when Christ saves us, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says it like this. He that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of salvation. God will never lose you. And then he says, I will sustain you. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And this is where he starts to really, really shake them. In verse number 53, the Bible says that Jesus said to them, Verily, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in 
you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. They couldn't get it. In verse 52, it says they started arguing sharply among themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. What does that mean? When the Jewish people heard this, like, he's crazy, he's a cannibal. What are these, what is he thinking? Eat his flesh, drink his blood. As a matter of fact, when, when the Romans picked up on the early church and their celebration of Eucharist or, or of, the, of the communion table, they called them cannibals. They called them atheists because they said they only believe in one God, this Jesus. And they talk about eating flesh and drinking blood. As a matter of fact, the lies begin to spread about the early Christians in such a way that by 60s A.D., Nero and Rome, was able to take people who were Christ followers, capture them, wrap them in cloths, dip them in oil, and then line his, line his, his carriage runway with Christians as human torches. This is shocking. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. What are you saying, Jesus? What is he saying? This is crazy. This is insane. Eating and drinking are the source and substance of your life and of my life. I like to say it like this. Eating and drinking of the flesh and the blood of Jesus is a life fully committed to the call and the commands of Christ. To live fully surrendered to his will and his purposes. Not my will, but his will. It's taking all of him. Here's the thing. When we eat the flesh and we drink the blood, there is no other option for life. It won't be found in a video game. It won't be found with with some kind of human experience of pleasure. It won't be found by pursuing more economic wealth or a new spouse on your arm. Never, 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 never. Unless you eat and drink of his blood, you will never experience eternal life. Life, eternal life. You know, all of us in this room want to live forever. We do. Even the person who doesn't believe in God. It's why in America last year, we spent $16 billion on elective cosmetic surgery. We had it poofed. We had it stretched. We had it shaped. We had it shrunk. Come on. We had it all done. Because there's something inside us that is looking for the fountain of life. We want to live forever. But we realize when we look in the mirror... Man, who is that guy? I showed someone a picture, my prom picture, when I was uh, 18 years of age. I was wearing a tuxedo, and I had a full head of Johnny Travolta hair. He says, is that you? I said, yeah, that's me. Really? That guy's long gone. All those hairs went down that drain a long time. But I have thought. I've thought about going to that guy in Maitland, you know, that sews it back in your head. I've thought about it. Come on, we want to live forever. Jesus said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you'll never have eternal life. You'll never have eternal life. You'll have no life in you. All the substitutes, all the things that we try to do to fill our life with the light of Christ, they just fall pale. They lead us to a place of brokenness. They lead us to a place of addiction. They lead us to a place of frustration and pain. So much of it inflicted by our own choices. 
Jesus said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. What a radical statement. What a right. It was a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, the question for you today is, what are you hungering for? What are you really hungering for? What are you really looking for? On hearing this, in verse number 60, the disciples said, the disciples said to Jesus, this is a hard saying. Hard. Because it, it, it demands a response. It demands a response from every person in this room. Full surrender. Totally give, my, totally give your life to me. Totally let go of your will. Surrender to my will. Not easy. Not easy. There is a battle in your flesh. The Bible says that we wrestle not against human flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. There are real live forces of darkness that are assigned to deceive and to trick and to pull you away from the life of God. Jesus said, you got to eat of me. You got to drink of me. What are you hungry for? And then it says that some people who heard him turned back and no longer followed him. Some turned back. If you've been to the church for a period of time, you've seen people get discouraged, get disappointed, get disillusioned, and they turn back. Jesus asked them, are you going to turn back? What caused you to turn back? What caused you to turn back? And then Jesus asked them, are you going to do this too? The 12, are you going to turn back on me? Are you going to turn your back? The next time you binge in that addiction, the next time you give yourself over to that flesh, you're turning your back on me again? Again? Are you going to do that? Peter speaks up and says, no, Lord. No, you have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to have the Passover meal. The cross was in front of him. Everything in Jesus' life was about moving forward and upward. The Passover, they would have a meal. The Jewish people, they would have a meal, a Passover meal, and they would have the lamb and the different and the different condiments that went with it. It all represented something in re- relationship to the deliverance from the time of slavery at the hands of the Egyptians. In the early church, as a matter of fact, when Jesus is talking about this passage, so many people understand this people to be a representative of what took place at communion. The koinonia, the fellowship of the brothers and sisters who would gather together and have a meal. I always tell people, I don't know what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus told this story, when he had the Passover meal that night. But whatever took place that night, I want to take place here. Whatever eating the flesh, whatever drinking his blood means, we understand it's a spiritual metaphor. I couldn't come up with a better metaphor. I mean, the Bible gives the best metaphor that could ever be shared in relationship to the body of Christ and of his blood. But whatever took place that night, the reality of Jesus, whatever took place that night, I want it to happen here. And so two things are going to happen here. Right now, in this moment, we're going to close our eyes, and we're going to reflect on the challenge that Jesus gave. These are hard words, Lord. These are hard words. Who can accept it? 
Many turned away. Are you? Are you today? Are you going to walk out of here and not allow the revelation of Christ, the bread of life who came down from heaven? Are you going to allow that to hear it in this moment and be hearers and not allow it to transform your life? And then we're looking forward. The cross behind us. We're looking forward to the day that Christ returns.